The 53rd New York Film Festival is right around the corner. Since 1963, NYFF has brought the best in world cinema to Lincoln Center, featuring established auteurs as well as fresh new talent. This year's edition is no different, with the latest from stateside favorites like Todd Haynes, Steven Spielberg, Michael Moore, and Danny Boyle, as well as international auteurs like Ho Shao Shen, Michelle Gondry, Chantal Ackerman, and Apichapong Wersithikal. The closing night selection comes from acclaimed actor Don Cheadle, who makes his directorial debut with Miles Ahead, the highly anticipated biopic of jazz legend Miles Davis. In addition to the main slate selections, the festival also includes newly restored classics, sidebars featuring exciting new works in documentary, avant-garde and immersive media, filmmaker talks, shorts programs, special events, and much more. Tickets to the New York Film Festival go on sale September 13th. Members at the film buff level or higher receive an early access period starting September 8th. NYFF packages of 12 tickets or more provide even earlier access with fulfillment beginning August 31st. Visit filmlink.org NYFF for more info. From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to another episode of The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's August 26, 2015. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today, you'll hear a conversation with writer-director Alex Ross Perry and actress Elizabeth Moss. Their new film together, Queen of Earth, opens today here at the Film Society. It drives me crazy that places like this are so close to the city. Places like this? Yeah, you know where... Tranquility isn't just a myth. Thanks for the exile. That's what this place is here for. From Alex Ross Perry, the acclaimed writer-director of Listen Up, Philip and The Color Wheel, comes an exploration of broken women, queen of Earth. Been here before? Just once last year. Be careful now, you never know. You never know what? Alex Ross Perry's follow-up to the acclaimed Listen Up, Philip, which was an official selection in last year's New York Film Festival, is a psychological thriller concerning the strained relationship between two women. Moss plays Catherine, a painter who is struggling to cope with a recent breakup and the sudden death of her father. She retreats to an idyllic upstate lake house with her close friend Virginia, played by Catherine Waterston, and over the course of a week, their friendship struggles to withstand Catherine's breakdown. Callum Marsh writes for The Village Voice, Queen of Earth is vigorous, frightening, electrifying stuff. And Richard Brody at The New Yorker says that the film is a masterwork of tone and mood, a musical movie, not a movie in the musical genre, but a movie that is itself like a piece of music, a composition not for voices, but for instruments. Earlier this week, our deputy director Eugene Hernandez sat down with Alex Ross Perry and Elizabeth Moss in our film center to talk about Queen of Earth. Their conversation ranged from the importance of the shooting location to the influence of B-movies, and much more. Queen of Earth opens here today, with Moss and Perry in person for Q&As. For more information, check out filmlink.org. Now let's go to Eugene Hernandez in conversation with Alex Ross Perry and Elizabeth Moss. To the close-up, this is Eugene Hernandez from the Film Society of Lincoln Center with Alex Ross Perry and Elizabeth Moss, and we're talking about Queen of Earth, their new film, which is opening this week. Um, 
I thought that maybe this podcast interview, Alex and Elizabeth, would be an opportunity for people who've been hearing about the movie or maybe have been hearing about some of your other work together. Um, this podcast might give people a chance to get not only some background on this movie, but um, a little bit more context and, and background on sort of how you work together, uh, what you're hoping to achieve with the film. And, and I think some people may even listen to this podcast after watching the movie so there may be some questions that i'll ask you that sort of um will illuminate the experience of people who have just seen the movie as well um because i think that you know with the movie going out in theaters as well as on digital i think there's going to be people that will see it in any number of different ways um alex how do you feel about that maybe just to start off the conversation the idea that um putting out a movie today in 2015 is not just about getting it booked at you know the angelica or at the film center or at you know, at the IFC center, but that it can reach a, a wider audience kind of from the get go. I, um, I mean, I, I'm still agnostic about it. I, I want to believe in it. Personally, I have yet to have the come to Jesus moment with VOD with anything I've done, but that doesn't mean that I don't believe that I could eventually find that. And maybe this will be it. You know, I, I'm not opposed to it. For the time being, you know, of course, the goal is to, um, you know, work up to like a Christopher Nolan Tarantino point where like you can just declare the way your movies will be released and everything in the world conforms around whatever you feel like doing. But as far as I'm concerned, there's that and there's everything else, you know, so I want to believe that it's like a totally valid way to do it. I just haven't seen the numbers for anything I've made to support that. I've seen it work for a lot of other people. And I always can figure out what made their movie so successful. So now I just want to make sure that it, it doesn't just work for a certain kind of movie, but that it actually could be a unilateral way of absorbing whatever different films are being released month by month. I mean, from a from a big screen versus small screen and immediacy versus kind of a delayed response, do you think about it in that context as well? I mean, the fact that, you know, uh, 10 years ago, people, w- people who didn't live in New York or L.A. would have to wait a long time to see your movie. Yeah, I mean, what you're describing is kind of like a tiny, which is the the film exhibition version of a much larger cultural shift of the fact that nobody can or wants to wait for anything anymore. (laughs) You know, like, yeah, like 10 years ago, you'd have to wait for a movie to expand slowly. 10 years ago, you'd also have to wait a week to watch an episode of a TV show, you know, and you'd have to you know, wait for everything. And, um, you know, everything about that has just kind of changed. So it would be like crazy to assume that movies would be the only thing that's immune to that level of impatience. And certainly, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, you know, every independent release came to Philadelphia. I didn't never get a chance to see stuff, but maybe I would have seen it sooner, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't really matter. I mean, then I wouldn't have all these great memories of getting a caravan of five friends and carpooling into the city to go to the art house to see new releases, which, Mm -hmm is a valuable experience as well. And in my opinion, obviously more valuable than immediate access, but it just depends for everybody. And, you know, obviously it's a good thing in a lot of ways. And it would be great if I got the feeling that, you know, by the end of our first weekend, it's not just people at the two theaters in New York that the film's beginning on that have seen it, but tens of thousands of people across the country. But I assume I'll have a much different numerical value to how many people actually watched it right away on, (laughs) on demand, but I am so ready to be surprised by this. Okay. Um, well, we're going to talk in a minute about the movie, the origin of the movie, and and dig into what it's about and how it was made. But I just want to hear a little bit more about, do you remember the first time you guys met, the two of you? 
Yeah, it was. Um, <clears throat> I was sent the script for Listen Up, Philip, and you know, you I I get sent a lot of uh, smaller films, a lot of indie films, and um, I'm I always read them, which is like not actually what everyone does. Um, but I like to make sure that I read them, even if it's just like reading the first 30 pages, just to, you know, make sure, because y I never want to miss a diamond in the rough, you know? And I really think first-time directors and, you know, uh, new filmmakers should be supported. So um, this one was 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 easy in the sense that it was just, it was a no-brainer. It was, Listen Up, Philip was such a great script. Um, and so then Alex and I Skyped. I watched The Color Wheel, and um, I just like bought it on iTunes, speaking of um, accessibility. Um, I bought it on iTunes and then um, we Skype for like an hour, right? Yeah. I mean, and I made fun of your brown bunny poster in yeah, your apartment. It's behind me on the video. <laughs> yeah, it looked like his apartment was like art directed by someone who was like, this is an indie filmmaker. So Did I made fun of him for that. The conversation? Uh, I wish. I could only <laughs> Skype with my old computer in certain parts of my apartment because the Wi-Fi was really poor. So I kind of had to do it like in one spot. Yeah, it was great. We had a great conversation and we've had the same kind of uh, ease of dialogue ever since. Um, and when you do that, you just want to make sure the person's not like crazy and you can mm -hmm. talk to them. And mm -hmm. um, and yeah, that we had such a great experience on Listen Up, Philip. We knew we wanted to work together again. It was just a matter of like, I'm not a writer, so he has to come up with the ideas. And um, and he did. He came up with Queen of Earth. And then uh, after a while, he's, you know, writing it, as you've said, like he saw me in it and um, texted me and was like, can I send you this thing? And I read it right away. And it was just, you know, there it was a great idea and it was sort of um I wanted to work with him again already um so it was an, an an easy choice but it also happened to be a really unusual film and a really complex character and something that I hadn't done so it was sort of um an, again a no-brainer for me um not to belabor it but in that kind of a first conversation um it's all it could either be a speed date you're meeting for 5 or 10 minutes and you move on or in this case, if you talk for an hour, what are the kinds of things you're talking about? Is it the film in particular or is it kind of broader things so you can get a sense of each other and what your tastes are more generally? Favorite foods. Yeah. Is it really? No. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, like the... Like what is each of you looking for? Well, it's interesting. Like you've probably Skyped with 20 Thousands. times more directors than I've Skyped with actors. But, you know, like I'd never done that before. And the casting of Listen Up, Philip was the first time I learned that like... If someone's in New York, you would end up getting coffee with them if they've read the script and they are interested. And if not, you'll Skype with them. So there's a real, like, there's a language to doing that. And first of all, it's really, I mean, it's just really awkward. It's awful. Because I'm never on Skype for any other reason. I don't really have a relationship with, you know, talking to a computer screen where I'm looking at someone and I see myself in a corner. It's not like I have business dealings with it or anything. So I only do it in those contexts. And, you know, this was probably, like, within the first two weeks of me ever doing it. And, you know, it's, like, the kind of pleasantries, you know, like, five to ten minutes of pleasantries, just, like, well, where you know, like, are you? Yeah, like, thanks for doing this. And then, like, then it's always, like, so let me tell you a little bit about where the script comes from and, like, kind of what I'm interested in doing with it. And then there's, like, kind of a question and answer session where, <laughs> where an actor, you know, says, like, well, look, here's my response to, to your inspiration for the, the writing and also to what I read in the character. And let me ask you some things about how you're going to make this movie and what your relationship's like with this character. And then that's basically it. And if it goes well, then you, there's no way to tell because you're just sitting in front of a computer. <laughs> and um, if it goes terribly, then, you know, that's 
then there, again, there's no way to tell. So yeah, it's very interesting. And then like, you know, you're kind of like doing this thing and like someone who you know already, whose work you're aware of is just like on your computer screen. And then you're just like, all right, great. Well, thanks. Bye. And then you're just like sitting alone in your apartment <laughs> and like wondering how it went. Yeah. You're just like, well, I guess that was that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a peculiar process, but you know, like I've, I've gotten used to it, but it's very interesting for, you know, films and what not to be cast that way. And for Listen Up, Philip, we Skyped Jonathan Price, Kristen Ritter. I didn't, I didn't meet any of these people until they were already in the movie. Like we Skyped and then met in Los Angeles like a month later. Yeah. But you were in the movie at that point. Yeah. And like we hung out with Jason, Jonathan, I met the day before his first day of filming. Kristen, I met in Los Angeles on this same trip. So like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty weird to not even know, like, what your physical dynamic might be, but I guess that's just the way movies are cast now, and I'd imagine 10 years ago you would have just been on the phone, which would be even worse. Mm-hmm. At least yeah. this way you can, like, actually feign a conversation. Yeah. Well, it um, it means a lot to us to have uh, this film opening here, and, and it, it's, it's meant a lot to us as an organization, Alex, to have you so engaged with this organization. I asked that as a way of leading into the conversation about where the idea came from, because I read somewhere that that at least um, a visit to the film society may have been or played a part in some capacity in the conception of the idea. Can you yeah, elaborate on true. that? Yeah, uh, that's true. I didn't realize oh. that, that, that until the, this, this fabled Fassbender double feature that I talk about all the time now. But um, so, yeah, I guess like, uh, like May of um, 2014 was part one of the complete Fassbender retrospective that film society did. And I finished the script like May 1st or something, like right around then. Um, so when I was at this this series, you know, the movie already existed, but I didn't, you know, it existed as like material. I didn't really see it yet. And, you know, that retrospective part one was like the early years and part two was the second half of the career. And it was a Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, Martha double feature, which are both single location movies kind of about the psychological warfare waged on and by women. And I just, you know, watching these, you know, very heightened sense of cinematic uh, emotions on display, of course, is in all the films. And I just kind of said, like, after that double feature, I was like, this is what Queen of Earth should feel like and look like. And, you know, I just made screen grabs and kind of sent them around eventually. And, you know, just the way that in Petra von Kahn specifically, the women are kind of posed in a very heightened, very theatrical way based on a play. You know, shooting in one location, I just felt like looking at that film would be relevant. And talking with uh, Sean Williams, a cinematographer, he was like, you know, this is why we work together well. Because he didn't see the movies at that screening. And he was just like, well, let's talk about what makes Petra von Kant work. He's like, you know, every frame in that film is very considered. And we had just made this very handheld film. So he was like, if we're going to do that, like, let's make sure that this film is mostly not handheld. Or at least we use it very sparingly. So that double feature was really... You know, I just said this is the kind of movie that this should feel like, you know, just visually in the kind of spatial relation of these single location women's pictures was very inspirational to me. And, you know, and then I was probably back the next day for something. And then the <laughs> second half of this retrospective was when we were editing. Um, so I was just, you know, probably sitting there getting a bunch more ideas for, for various different tricks. <laughs> How does the from the other perspective of working with an actor, in this case, working with Elizabeth, how does the conversation about other films, either influences or approaches, performance styles, how does that play into your dis- your discussion? Or is it something that you're keeping up here and not sharing as much? You said you shared frame grabs and things, but like, how does that play out in a real 
No, it, I mean with with like with Listen Up, Philip. It was um, the DVD that I stole. What was it? Husbands and wives. Husbands and wives, which he gave. He let me borrow the DVD, and I never gave it back. Um, that was really helpful. I like to have an objective viewpoint of what it's going to look like. It helps me as an actor to understand what the what the style is. I used to be. I don't consider myself very good at it anymore. But I used to be a little bit of a cinephile, so I like to understand where the director and cinematographer are coming from. So that was really helpful in that sense. And then this one was. Um, um, the one that I really latched onto, although there are other films that perhaps like influenced Alex more, was just as an actor was Repulsion, which was I think the first one that you told me, um, and that was the one that I sort of latched onto f- that would help me in m- the development of my character. Um, and then like he would, you know, no, it was it's he's very he he's really into showing things. And then it was Robert Altman's Images, and it was um, Petra von Kant, and like. That kind of thing, it's sort of, you know, he doesn't, like, you know, force it down an actor's throat, but it's like, take it or leave it, take what you want from it, this is what I want it to look like, you can watch it, you can not watch it, but this is what it is. Um, and I find that very, very helpful as an actor. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's very, like, a very film school idea to, like, picture giving an actor, like, a stack of DVDs yeah. and be like, watch all these. Yeah. But for this, <laughs> it's, it's more. it's more like... Basically, like, I know enough now about, like, the way the movies are going to be made and the general atmosphere on set where it's like, look, this is going to get referenced a lot by me and the cinematographer and maybe one or two other people. At the very least, you should just, like, you know, don't watch it. If you don't want to, don't watch a two-hour movie on top of another two-hour movie. But, look, here's some stills. Maybe just, like, watch a couple clips. Just because we're going to be referring to this style a lot and... It'll either just be something that goes over your head or you can have some vague idea of what we're referring to. Exactly. I think that there's like a nice sweet spot there. Like I had Altman's images on my computer and one day like, you know, for lunch, I was, I was just like, you know, just watch whatever this you want. You, you know, skipped around and we're just watching parts of it. It's yeah. Like, you know. I like lied in bed in my like room uh, and like just put it on the bed and like was watching it and like napping and then I'd wake up and watch some more and I just like watched some throughout the day and it was inspiring. Yeah, it's fun because, like, you know, for me, like, once I've kind of decided that something's going to be important, so, like, I saw this Petra von Kant Martha double feature and I was like, this is important, then there's, uh, the last thing I want to do was watch the movie again. Mm-hmm. And working with a cinematographer who probably wasn't at that screening, but then has seen the movies many times, like, he doesn't need to watch them. So then, because if we watch them and if the actors watch them, then you're actually taking things away from them. Whereas if you don't, you're just kind of taking away what you what you think you remember. Mm-hmm. And your version of it's always going to be a little bit different than whatever it actually is. So if the entire crew is huddled around a computer and we're painstakingly looking at frames from a movie and trying to replicate them, yeah. then, you know, we can all just go home because there's, there's nobody's doing any work. It's more fun to kind of just give the impression of something and then assume that we remember it correctly yeah like rosemary's baby i didn't watch again because i've seen that a few times but i knew what you meant when you said like kind of like rosemary's baby <laughs> yeah you know you just say like a polanski thing and it's yeah like, you're like oh okay i get it i could say <laughs> you know i could say like specifically what we're going to be talking about the most is knife in the water because repulsion takes place in the city and knife in the water doesn't mm-hmm. but like I'm, you know then, then that's just giving someone homework and i don't think anybody got into making movies and acting to do homework right so let's Talk a bit about the setting. You've referred to, you know, the notion of it being set in one place and, and 
how that relates to other movies that you looked at. Um, Elizabeth, you referred to going back to your room. I assume you guys were staying in the place where you shot. Is that a, no? You weren't. No, we stay. We stayed at a. Oh, I stayed at a Hampton Inn. Um, yeah, we just sort of no. We just hung out around the house pretty much. I mean, it was a house. So you could like stay in bedrooms. You could you could go relax in yeah, bedrooms. I mean, or like you know any of the locations you see in the movie, like the dock or the hammock. People yeah, could just kind of be in at their leisure. Yeah, there were no trailers or anything. So the, the did the idea for the film come from the place or from the people or or to what extent did they influence each other as you were kind of conceiving of the concept for the overall story? I mean, when I was writing it, you know, I didn't know exactly what size movie it would be in terms of what um, you know, we were going to back into because on any independent movie you're backing into something. So I didn't know if it would be yeah, we can actually give, you know, we can go to the Hamptons and get a huge palatial house and pay $25,000 for it because it's the only location or we're going to have to get pretty creative about how to find a place. So, you know, I was just kind of picturing some place. And of course, I have no recollection of what I was picturing when I was writing because now I just picture where we shot it. <laughs> um, but, you know, like you go and you look at it and it just feels right. And you're looking at a house with huge windows and the light in the house throughout most of the day is, is very bright and you know it has its upsides and its downsides you know I, when I was writing it I'm sure I didn't picture that it would be a house that doesn't really have a second floor you know it's just like a bedroom and then like a tiny landing area and then another bedroom which is not ideal in many ways but then what is ideal is that you can just shoot from the landing down to the open living room so as soon as you see that it's like a whole visual world of possibilities and then Later, when you look at images again, you realize there's a lot of stuff in that film that's kind of pointing downward as well. I don't know how they did it specifically for that. But, you know, like, I've never made a movie where we're not adjusting to the hard realities of where we happen to be filming. I've never, like, had it where we just, like, pick what we want, pay top dollar for it, and have complete <laughs> control. You know, it's always, like, a, a compromise of some kind. But in terms of compromises, being at a place like this is, is pretty pretty easy to deal with. So do you remember where the... Um what the original or initial kind of kernels of inspiration were for this story or, or how it was built in your mind? Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, starting to write just after listen up, Philip was at Sundance and talking with, uh, Joe Swanberg, the producer of the movie about what was on my mind and things that we were both very interested in. It's just for whatever reason, after coming back from that particular Sundance, he'd been before I'd never been. And we were both very, just very tired and we felt like there was this weird thing happening to us as, you know, independent filmmakers, which is basically as unimportant as someone can be. You know, there's no reason to care about what an independent filmmaker is up to or what their movies are, you know, like how they're coming together, or what the next thing is. But whatever, there's this curiosity around it. And we both felt like that was really weird. Like, why should any, like, who cares? Like, oh, so what are you working on next? And it's like, well, I don't, I don't know. Like, what does it, what does it matter? Like, <laughs> we'll have that conversation when I finish it. And we were just like, isn't it weird that like even us like way at the bottom of the food chain, like w privacy is like this question that we have about why it is that people are so interested. And, you know, after a movie premieres, when's it going to play in New York? Who's releasing it? You know, when they're releasing it. And it's just like, yeah, like this is a, this is my like emotional nightmare right now. I don't really want to talk about this every time I leave my house. And we were just talking about how weird that is because it's like, you know, we're not, we're not doing anything good for society. We're not curing cancer or anything. It's just like people just want to know when they can go see the thing. And for whatever reason, those questions, when you answer it, you know, 200 times becomes really just kind of difficult to muster up the enthusiasm for. And I just became very interested in privacy 
and just and also how I was like I really deserve privacy and then it was like well no I don't why am I don't deserve anything I'm nobody why do I feel entitled to it so what what kind of a story is there to tell about someone who really wants privacy and feels like they deserve it but then the movie's about them putting themselves physically in a space where it's not really going to happen if you really want privacy you don't leave your apartment you don't go on vacation and then say I'm here to get away but you're with other people so yeah there's just a lot of questions I had really just you know about privacy and entitlement and things I was really curious about in these couple of months after you know a very very busy year that culminated in like a really whirlwind week of premiering the last movie so in this case does a writing process like that resolve anything for you or does it just sort of allow you to let off some steam so you can keep being creative well it all resolves yeah i mean the whole fun of making anything like this is that the writing of it is kind of like asking the questions and then making it is kind of like having other people kind of work through this with me and then this part of it is acting you know like this is the final part of it because then i end up having a lot of long and kind of interesting conversations with people who come at these issues from their own perspectives Mm -hmm. and it's only at this point that the film's you know life and my involvement with it is complete that the kind of therapeutic process of having these issues that I'm, I'm very much consumed by is, is actually, you know, is over. And at that point, I've, I've learned enough at least to move on from it. What's interesting about it, I think, and I, and I want to ask Elizabeth to weigh in from your perspective in just a second, but this is a quick observation. I think that as someone, as you get to know as an audience member who sometimes does ask the like question of like, well, when can I, when, when can I, like my friends see this or when is your movie going to be done or what festivals are going to be at? As you develop a relationship with a filmmaker, and it's a filmmaker who speaks to you in some way, their work speaks to you. So, you know, you, you find, for lack of a better word, a therapeutic component to their work, or or it provokes you or you respond to it in a certain way. It's only natural to, like, kind of want to, you know, accelerate that process or to be anxious for their next work or something that they might be doing. Um, so well, it's I'm, not, interesting... I'm, not, I'm not saying this is a bad oh, no, impulse. Not at all. I'm just saying it's, it's an interesting, it is an interesting dynamic that's created probably with you and an audience um, because people get to know you better, I think, creatively as they see more and more of your work. Yeah, sure. Which then can also create the problem of privacy. Yeah. The feeling that they know you a little bit better too. Yeah, especially like uh, once you make a couple things and, you know, it's a totally honest impulse. But, you know, in the movie, it's like the version of that in the movie is someone who's clearly hurting. And the impulse of one friend wanting to help another friend, again, is very honest. But I'm very interested in people who respond to genuine, heartfelt outreach of curiosity or help with hostility, as I myself was doing at this time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just an interesting reaction to me. And the Catherine character that you play in the movie does that a lot. And that's kind of the central idea is what makes someone lash out when clearly people just want to help. It's interesting because the movie begins, this is not giving anything away. The movie starts with your character in such a dark, dramatic place. You know, you're, you're as an audience member forced to grapple with this person who is, you know, um, she's going through a moment and, and then moment. we start learning more about what is leading up to that moment or what's maybe affecting it. Um, how much of that did you imagine or visualize or think about when you you mentioned earlier just getting the script, reading it? You already had a relationship with Alex. Um Tell us a bit about what you responded to and, and how you sort of imagined some of those early moments, well, those I early think, scenes. Like, yeah, I mean, I think any actor, like, any sees, like, any, you know, one long close-up that's only on you and you get to, like, talk a lot and cry and you're like, yay, this is going to be awesome. So I thought, I you know, obviously, 
you know, in an egotistical way, I was like, oh, this is cool. Um, but I also just really liked the idea of starting a film like that, of it being so in your face from the first frame and starting a film that had quite, you know, an arc and, and all this emotion and psychological sort of depth to it with a really, really low moment already. So you're, uh, you know, so you're sort of as a viewer kind of like, where, where is it going to go now? We've already seen this person at her most vulnerable and, you know, worst. And, and that's why, you know, she's, we had the idea that she was like, he started to break up with her when she was in the shower. So she's literally like at her most vulnerable. She looks like shit. Like she's in a natty bathrobe like and that was um and you know for me as an actor that's just stuff that I love to do and it's super it's fun it's fun for me to do that but I also just thought it was a kind of a a cool move to start out a film with this just person just totally losing it and and then not knowing where it was going to go from there if the whole idea of the film is that she loses it you know what I mean um so for me, you know, it was uh, that in shooting that scene, we we kind of kept putting it off and putting it off because we knew it was like important. And we kind of kept like, I think we rescheduled it like at least twice. Right. Yeah. Well, we shot the entire movie in order, except for the first scene, which yeah. we shot on the last day, I think. Just yeah. Because you kept feeling like. It was like not right. Not the right be, time. Not the right it time. It would be scheduled for the end of a day. And then you'd be like, you know, I don't really I'm kind of running low I don't really have that scene in me yeah right now so it became like and I knew exactly what it had to be like I knew it had to be at a certain emotional level or wasn't going to work and it was obviously the first scene of the movie so it was pretty important and that was what was like also so cool about the this process of making this film was I was able to say that if something was on the schedule I was literally able to turn to Alex and be like I don't know if I'm, I, I don't know man I don't know if I can do this tonight and you you don't get to do that anywhere else ever <laughs> yeah it's a, i mean that's i mean that's like the whole point of you know the kind of open collaborative spirit is like you know not only do you get to say that but everyone's just like okay yeah sure yeah <laughs> let's, let's, let's do it some other day then and totally if we finish early then we can go do something else today or right like, or we can just get an inch ahead for tomorrow mm-hmm. yeah it's neat i mean you know to me like there's so much like I talk so much about like the hows and whys of starting the movie that way, but like it's just really fun to start something like in motion, and also like you know just this is like a trick, it's not sort of, but like you're gonna send a script to actors like they're gonna be reading it, wondering like what they could do with this, and like if right away like you better start strong. So like that's a that's a business reason to narratively begin the script like right in it like you don't want to build up to it so that by the time they're on page 15 they're like i've been reading this script for a while i still don't really know what to do and to just start it so strong uh you know is fun mm-hmm. did similar trick on listen up fill up where the opening is just like this kind of similar to this like a prologue almost like my favorite kind of book is where like the first chapter just serves as like its own short story like you could just finish right there mm-hmm. um and it's just like a beautiful beginning middle and end almost but yeah, and there's just like, let's just do this as this one shot, this one close up on a trial. Like, you know, the, before the title of this movie comes up, there's more, there's longer, there's more tripod than there was in all of us and up Philip. You know, <laughs> like the first four minutes of this just is the one tripod, you know, like the, that's more than we did. So it's just like from the very beginning, this is going to be a whole different process and just an entirely new journey of trying to figure out how to do something like this. And just to follow up on that, shooting the scene itself, I assume you did it a couple of times. How did 
how many times did you take it and, and how did it change over the course of those different takes? Were there different versions or interpretations or was it honing a process? I, I think I we, I mean, we definitely didn't do it more than three times. I believe it could have been as few as two. Yeah. Or as many as three. I think it might have been three. Yeah. I think it was probably three. But not certainly not more than that because it's really long. So yeah, it's like, yeah. and at a certain point, you know, you're like, well, you have plenty here to like work with. And we also didn't, I think we weren't quite sure at that time. You weren't quite sure at that time if you were going to cut away or like yeah. how many times you were going to cut away. We so. got the reverse angle of, you know, whoever she's talking to just in case. Yeah. But, um, you know, which ended up being good because I think the first half and the second half of it are from two different takes. Yeah. But, you know, again, it's just like that's kind of the acting trick that I enjoy watching is like you did give something different. Like one of them may have been a little bit more like in a little bit more of a funny direction where like there's one where you were definitely kind of making fun of him and like, <laughs> you know, kind of laughing at him in a way that became exaggerated and like a woman under the influence, Gina Rollins kind of thing where it's like she seems kind of like she's like, you know, almost going to spit on him. And then other versions where it was just more truly broken. Sad. Yeah. So there's, you know, ways to find those those versions. And again, it's just like a neat kind of dynamic where it's very clear what is needed. I'm, I'm crystal clear on what it needs to feel like ultimately. But within that, there's like degrees of, you know, you know, just changes that you can do minute by minute or take by take that don't alter the vision as a whole. They just kind of create versions of it that we can then kind of play with later depending on what the movie needs mm -hmm. for those um elizabeth who are listening to this podcast um who either just saw the movie and they're trying to process your character or for those who might be listening who are being in hopefully intrigued by the conversation enough to then go see it this character um how much of this character did you need to sort of understand psychologically in order to play this character and where this character goes or to what extent is that happening over the course of, because you said most of it almost entirely shot in order how much of that is happening along the process are you getting to know the character better while shooting it it's a real mix honestly it's a real blend I mean I think you have to have an objective viewpoint of what it's going to be as an arc and sort of be able to visualize it so you know where you have to start and where you have to end and at the same time allow the steps along the way to inform who the character becomes and that's regardless of whether or not it's in order that can still happen you know it just is a little bit more chaotic um the only thing I I sort of didn't did know and did think about was I just I, I knew it was supposed to be this the story of someone's sort of descent into madness and and I knew she was supposed to go crazy and she Lizzie objectively like I think that she's crazy but I needed I wanted it to be as real as possible I wanted to take the sort of everyday things that you and I feel whether it's like a bit of sadness loneliness anger wanting to be alone wanting privacy wanting companionship um those like that, those couple of days where you feel overwhelmed and like you're going crazy. I wanted to take the reality of that that everyone feels and just expand it by a thousand. And and that was sort of my way into making it as real as possible and not just like, oh, she's like acting crazy now. Like I really wanted to believe that, you know, Patrick and Catherine's characters are possibly 
at least they're they're at least talking shit about her. You know what I mean? If not planning her murder. Um, so it was it was I really needed it to be as real as possible so that I believed that it was they were really out to get me up to a certain point. And I really did think that Patrick's character was a total sleaze ball and I really didn't like his character, you know, and um, I really did have those conflicting emotions about my friendship with Ginny. And so I think that that was, you know, obviously she takes it to a place that is not necessarily an everyday place, Mm -hmm. but, and that's what makes it a movie and that's what makes it interesting. Like someone just having like a bad weekend would be probably boring, although there are those movies. Um, But that wasn't the movie we were making, but I needed it to be as real as possible for me as an actor and not be like just chaotic and crazy, you know? I want to switch gears and we don't have too much time left, but I want to just um, switch gears. You've talked about how you shot it. You've talked about the setting. I think it's worth talking about uh, sound and music for a moment. Um, because I think that um, I'd love to hear about the way you thought about or conceived of how you would use and how you ultimately used sound and music in this particular film to accentuate the experience of watching it, but also how that maybe ties into your a broader thought you might have about how to use sound and music if you have a theories um, theory as such. Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole idea behind every decision on this movie was that you know, it was just all about whatever the most cinematic version of anything is, which is the Fassbender trick, which even if you're doing a movie all set in one room, there's the heightened cinematic version that you can do, and that's where he lives. Or, you know, after a certain point in his career, it's definitely where he lives. Um, And yeah, every decision was kind of based on that. Like, this is not a natural movie. Naturalism uh, doesn't exist here. The lighting is often very exaggerated. Uh, in subtle ways that doesn't betray what you're watching, but it's not, you know, like Listen Up, Philip, where it's just meant to be very real and, you know, simple looking. And every decision had to follow that. So, you know, this just comes from, it's the same sound mixer, designer, and composer as Listen Up, Philip. So like every other part of this movie, it just comes from knowing what these people are capable of, because I'd never really been through the process with anybody like that until that film. So now that I'm sitting for the mix with the same guy, you know, I know that he can bring in his own ideas. And uh, on a movie like this, you know, he's the same as anybody. I gave him a movie or two to look at. But I know that he understands things about planting little sound in one channel that creates this feeling where it slowly builds into another that I don't understand the techniques of and I don't understand the artistry of. And everyone kind of knows, as we're talking about from the schedule on down, that if someone suggests something like that to me, the answer is probably just going to be like, well, yeah, sure, let's, uh, that's fine, let's just try it. So it becomes very complete. And if everybody you're working with is good and has their own ideas, then every aspect of the film is going to end up being something that can be talked about, you know, honestly. I mean, how many independent films could you sit here and talk about where, like, the discussion of the sound design even matters? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, other things that we talk about with this movie, like shot length or, you know, anything like actual craft of the making of something is seldom discussed. But for me, there's no reason not to foreground it just as a fan of the different tools that you have to play with. So, yeah, it's all just, you know, heightened and letting these kind of piercing music cues set this menacing tone and having weird things like, you know, the sound effects of outside that are inside a little bit louder than they should be or, then when you're outside, the you know natural sound effects are a little bit off, stuff like that that you know comes from the sound designer, this guy named Ryan Price, 
looking at some of these low-budget genre movies that I was suggesting. And of course, you know, the history of films like this, and he pointed this out to me in this one film that I also saw here at the Film Society called Let's Scare Jessica to Death, which I'd seen before, but it played here a few years ago on 16mm. You know, he's like, what makes these horror movies from the 70s feel so weird and vacant is that they didn't have any recorded sound, or they did, but then some scenes, they just couldn't do it. Or this movie that we ended up talking about on set a lot, Carnival of Souls, which is, of course, very famous. Um, You know, like, that movie was probably shot without sound. So when you watch it now, what it sounds like is very strange, and it sets a tone that, because of the fact that these movies have existed for decades, we identify with that genre. And he was like, well, here's how you can kind of inch towards a feeling like that, even though, obviously, this movie was not filmed without sound. Uh, you know, and then you, then you watch the movie again, or we're looking at clips of it in the mixing room, and it's like, yeah, entire, like, you know, there's a whole room, and there's just no room tone. And there's just footsteps. Not because of any artistic reason, but that's just because that's what they did. Like, the Foley mixer just dropped in the footsteps, but at the time, it wouldn't be like, yeah, you, you know, you really should have some room tone that matches the room. <laughs> It would just be like, let's just make it to be some white noise and then footsteps. And those films feel a certain way now because of all these different things that I never analyzed why low-budget genre filmmaking sounded that way. But you sit down with a good sound mixer and he'll explain it to you. So elements like that can really help, I think, create a tone that feels more comprehensive than, you know, it just ends up being the sum of its parts. And I think if you do it well, then people get excited by the whole thing and then they can pick apart what they found fun about it. I think it's a massive reason why people keep thinking this film is so creepy and so scary. You know, it's like there's nothing really that scary that happens in it. Like, I mean, I guess it's sort of subjective, but, you know, it's but the sound and the music and everything just lends this feeling to it that just just scares the bejesus out of you. Yeah, like anything you can do to just remind people of things that they were scared by or that just feel unpleasant or different or menacing in some way, you know, it it can only help because on a movie like this, you don't have a hundred resources to manipulate any sort of audience reaction. You make do with what you can. So you're going to have a score and you're going to have a sound mix and you're going to have actors and camera and lighting. That's basically it. So anything other than those you can't control, but those you can really just have fun with and and create something that feels hopefully different enough that people care to engage with it as something that, you know, it seems a little bit against the grain of whatever else is being given to them these days. Well, the film is Queen of Earth. As I mentioned earlier, we are super thrilled to have it opening at the Film Society and um, even more excited to have um, Alex Ross Perry and Elizabeth Moss on the close-up talking with us about it today. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.